So where did Brian Asamoah end up going in this week one game? What happened to Justin Jefferson in the second half and where can the Vikings go from here? And all of the rest of your questions on Twitter Tuesday on the Locked on Vikings podcast. You liked it on three, one, two, three, you liked it! You are Locked on Vikings, your daily Minnesota Vikings podcast. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Locked On Vikings podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. As always, I am your host, Luke Braun, and let's find some joy today. You can find the Locked On Vikings podcast wherever you find your favorite shows, whether it is a place where you listen to uh, your favorite audio podcasts like Sirius XM, which we are partnered with. Go listen to them. If you're looking for a place to listen on the radio, you can find it at Sirius XM. You can find any live sports game there. You can also find the show on YouTube or even Amazon Fire and Roku. Just download the Lockdown Minnesota Sports app. Thank you guys so much for those of you who do listen to this show every single day. My hashtag everydayers, I appreciate you all greatly, and I love to hear from you in the YouTube comments if that's where you're watching. Sound off wherever you can. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by Prize Picks the easiest and most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Go to prizepicks.com slash NFL and use code LOCKEDONNFL, all lowercase, for a first deposit match up to $100. Today is Twitter Tuesday. That means I'm answering your questions as submitted to me via a whole bunch of different avenues. If you have a question for me, send it to me on Twitter at LukeBronNFL or at LockedOnVikings. You can send an email to LockedOnVikingsPodcast at gmail.com. You can fill out a Google the uh, Google form in the show notes if you have something longer, or as some people have begun using it, just to vent. That's also fine, I guess. I don't mind. Uh, you can leave a YouTube comment as well. Get get me a question there, too. Sometimes I'll just answer it straight up. Uh, the first question that I'm going to answer today comes from AntXJetus, who asks, why did Asamoah barely play? Okay, so this is a very curious situation, and I think there's two explanations that I'm willing to buy, and I'll let you pick whichever you like more. The first is to take the Vikings on faith in what they have told us. So somebody asked Kevin O'Connell this after the game, and he said, hey, you know, Asma had the shoulder injury. He didn't get a lot of snaps in the preseason, and we felt Ivan Pace was a little bit more ready because he got more reps. Okay. Uh, or in camp and preseason. Uh, that seems reasonable enough, right? Oh, man, yeah, no, somebody just got a lot more run and felt a little more warmed up, so we went with that guy, right? Seems a little weird because Asamoah was a very penciled in starter for all of camp. And um, I don't think he ever took a second team rep uh, in at least not in the camp that that I saw. And he didn't play in the preseason at all. So it's not like this was somebody competing for a job and then lost it. So I guess that tracks if you want to take them on faith or you can kind of go with the more intuitive uh, explanation, which is Ivan Pace outplayed Brian Asamoah in camp. They wanted to start him, but they also want to save face. So they're saying, yeah, but there was this shoulder injury. Brian Asamoah was not on the injury report. Uh, he played on special teams. He played, I think, two reps on defense. And uh, this uh, blaming an injury kind of something smells, you know, uh, I don't know. But you can either take them on faith and say it was just kind of a preparedness thing. Or you can say maybe Ivan Pace beat out Brian Asamoah as a better linebacker, whichever you want. Uh, but that is how that went down. 
Uh, Skull of the Wild asks, do you think this Flores defense is going to get hurt a lot by hot routes with all of the blitzing they're going to do? Um, so that, I mean, that is like the first plan against a blitz is to throw hot, right? If you can't pick up the blitz, if you have a free rusher, this is the way offenses work. If you have a free rusher, either because someone got beat really bad or because they did a blitz and, and they just win the numbers game, the quarterback becomes responsible for that free rusher. The quarterback, uh, his method for dealing with that rusher is to get rid of the ball. And so certain plays will have what are called hot routes, which is if you see a guy abandon the progression, F the rest of the play, and I'm just going to dump it off to whatever my hot route is. So to answer that question, yeah, hot routes, of course, are something that you have to deal with. But as the blitzing defense, part of the game plan is going to be figuring out, all right, where do they like to go with the ball when they are blitzed? Is it swing passes to the outside or is it crossers over the middle or is it, you know, Justin Fields? He's going to run and kind of be his own check down. Um, All of those are strategies that you will see around the NFL. And I think part of game planning is being prepared for those and being ready to to uh, beat those. But really what I found myself more frustrated with watching the game, I've only watched the offensive tape, not the defensive tape. So I'll get around to that. We'll talk more about that tomorrow uh, when I've seen the whole thing and on Patreon and stuff too. But for now, I'll go with reiterating kind of what I thought after the day, which is um, adjusting alignment depths can help with that uh, depending on what they think they're going to see that the hot route is but it's just part of the cat and mouse game. So will they struggle with it? I'm sure somebody will get the better of Flores, and I'm sure Flores will get the better of other people too over the course of the season. Um, QBs that get rid of the ball quickly against the Blitz are really good against defenses that like to Blitz a lot, and you're never going to get Flores to back off. That ain't going to be something that he does. No seatbelts, we die like men. Uh, Mario asks similar question here. How much of the corner sitting so far back at the line of scrimmage is actual coaching slash play call and how much of it is the corner's own comfort level? Okay, this is a great question and you you get a lot of different answers about it depending on who you ask. So my understanding of this is there are certain coverages that require a certain alignment depth. For example, cover zero, right? If you are cover zero blitzing, you you may not press. You are not allowed to press. If you go line up and press and cover zero, you're going to get your ass benched. Uh, That's bad. You have to line up off. What does off coverage mean? Whether that's seven to eight yard range, whether that's nine to 10 yard range, 11 to 12 yard range, that becomes a game plan slash play call thing. In some defenses, that is something that is not controlled for the cornerback, that you tell the cornerback, hey, study what routes this dude runs and go line up where you're comfortable. Um, I actually spoke to Trey Waynes about this many years ago on this show. I think it was in 2020, uh, right after he signed with the Bengals. That was when that happened, right? Uh, Before he got hurt. And I asked him about off coverage because that was a thing for Trey Waynes was a lot of first downs caught in front of him. And I asked him about off coverage and he kind of explained that there are a million different factors that go into it on a given play. And so describing it as a hard and fast rule is probably just going to be more confusing. It's uh, what is their alignment, right? What's their formation? What Concepts, do they like to run out of this formation? What's the down and distance? How fast is this guy? How 
often does this guy win contested catches? All of that stuff goes into the decision, and I think it it will vary team to team, whether that decision is on the corner or on uh, the coach just telling you, no, line up at 13 yards because I say so. Uh, Shockey MN asks, how likely are we to see a guard get signed? I know everyone is clamoring for it. I don't think it's that likely, y'all. Uh, I've been telling you that. I, I just, I don't think it's going to happen. They, they, they don't panic. Like the, these games are, have not been bad enough for panic with, with, it's with Ed Ingram. Who's the one I, I, I don't think Ed Ingram had a very good game at all, but, uh, I don't think it was bad enough to like go panic sign someone. Um, I talked about that on yesterday's show. I, the, the, I titled it, Is It Time to Panic About the O-Line? And the first thing I said was no. <laughs> uh, that would be a irresponsible panic move. Swapping in another guy doesn't fix the issue. It just makes it the same issue with a different guy. So I don't know. Maybe I'll just want to see a different name get beat. Um, Cam X-Storm <laughs> says, After reviewing this, the tape, how did Schlotman hold up against Vita Vea? Not bad, I think. Uh, it was he. He took his licks. He got a, got him a couple times. There was one you probably remember Vita Vea knifing in in the red zone for a big TFL that was on Schlotman. But um, I thought he anchored pretty well. I think they did a good job of of keeping him out of one on one pass rush situations, which you know you're not going to want Vita Vea one on one on your backup center. I thought they did a good job of sort of uh, managing that. So given what he was asked to do, which is going to be limited, he's a backup. I thought he did fine. Uh, Brett asks, were you surprised by how close, how they chose to split the workload in the backfield? Not really. I think I've, I've called Alexander Madison like a 60% guy. I think it was closer to 70 uh, or maybe even 80. So it was maybe a little more than I was expecting, but nothing crazy. Um, Miles Gaskin didn't get in at all. Uh, there's a question about him coming up too that I, I will answer uh, about what they did with him. But no, I didn't expect Ty Chandler to get uh, you know a major role or anything like that. I figured he'd come in for a few drives to spell Madison, but it would be the Madison show. And that's about what we got. Um, got a whole bunch more questions, including that one about Miles Gaskin, some stuff about Justin Jefferson, some stuff about should they play in the preseason and all of that. Uh, so make sure that you... Stick around while I talk to you about Grambling. It is full-on Grambling season. If you want to go gramble on the Minnesota Vikings, maybe you think they'll pull off the upset in Philadelphia. Maybe you just want to short it. Maybe you just want to say, nope, Philly's going to blow us out, and I'll bet all the unders. You can do that. You can go to FanDuel.com and emotionally hedge to your heart's content. FanDuel.com slash locked on is where you go do that. If you have not signed up at FanDuel, this is a great time to do it because new customers get $5 or new customers who bet $5 get 200 back in bonus bets. So any $5 bet, you get $200 back in bonus bets, guaranteed whether that original bet wins or not. Uh, also, anyone who bets $5 gets 100 bucks off of NFL Sunday tickets. So there is no better time to go join FanDuel right now. They've got all kinds of promos all the time at FanDuel.com, but this is as good a one as I've seen. So go to FanDuel.com slash locked on to claim it and kick off the NFL season with that offer that you will not want to miss. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. Moving right along with this episode of the Lockdown Vikings podcast. Thanks again to my hashtag everydayers. Uh, so later in the week, we'll do crossover Thursday with Locked On Eagles. That'll go up the morning of the Thursday night game. And then, of course, we'll do a recap show on Friday. And then we'll have a little bit of time to regroup after, uh, you know, two games in four days. 
As for today, though, we're going to keep on going with a question from Dennis, who asks, what happened with JJ's productivity in the second half? Small sample size of three drives. Uh, yes, small sample size of three drives. They had 17 passing attempts in the seven, in the second half. It's actually not a crazy amount of passing attempts, but the vast majority of them happened on one drive. It was a 17-play drive and then a 16-play drive. Uh, so when you split things from like first half to second half, you have to be mindful of what's happening to the sample sizes. It was three drives. Um, the, the, the drive where the vast majority of those snaps occurred was a touchdown drive. So it's kind of hard to argue with that. Maybe, yeah, maybe they were doubling Jefferson and uh, they just like converted a bunch to TJ Hawkinson and CJ Ham, but they moved the ball and they scored a touchdown on that drive. So what are we complaining about? And then on the three and outs afterwards, there was like two passing attempts and they were like, they called a couple screens instead. And they, that's it. That's what happened. They called a couple screens and then they didn't get the ball back for like nine minutes. Um, that's, there's an issue there, but it's not one of, of like game plan. Um, that said, there's another question here from Javier Roder who asks, what are your thoughts on the offensive play calls on Sunday? TB definitely made adjustments in the second half. And I feel like we stopped taking shots down the field. Yeah. So they started switching to more half structures, which is always been the oh my god we gave up 150 yards and a half to justin jefferson we got to just start putting two high safeties in back there and it was very similar to the 2022 problem where they couldn't punish that uh with the run and because of other blemishes in the passing game and just not getting the ball back on defense uh they couldn't punish that with like addison or hawkinson the way that they wanted to and they tried to, but then, you know, you would have a, a sack or something, or they tried to counter some of that stuff with screens, which I think is not the counter punch I would have chosen. Um, but I think if I were to come up with, like, a real thing, it's I, I think triangle reads are probably a bad punish for, for uh, too high as well. Triangle read plays, I think that's an old term, but that's plays where you sort of read the middle of the field first. They converted a couple of first downs to TJ Hawkinson doing this. That's like this sort of middle search kind of thing or this uh, choice kind of thing almost. And I think they sort of tried to keep attacking that way. Um, but what a triangle read is, is you read the middle of the field and between like two hook defenders, like two linebackers say it's cover three and you've got two linebackers in the middle and you want to split them. And you see if that's open. And if one of those two is crashing inside, that means that they're not helping on the sideline where you have a high route and a low route. So you read high low and it makes a little triangle. That's a triangle read. They called a lot of that. That was just kind of like curls or swirl routes or just spot stuff that was meant to try to take advantage of the spacing that way. But against cover two, that doesn't work. Because if you visualize cover two, you have two deep defenders. So they're going to take the two deep things. And you have five underneath defenders. So, you, so nobody's going to be in conflict if you attack that with only three routes. It just kind of seemed like they didn't properly identify the counterpunch that they needed to do. But then there were also just like problems of execution. You can have the perfect play call dialed up, but ultimately it's about if the players play. Uh, Jacob Moore asks, if me and you both saw the coverage issue on the blitzes, why didn't Flores make the in-game adjustments? So I, I'm super sympathetic to this point, um, but with the alignment depth thing that I suggested on the immediate recap show, two things. One, I'm an idiot. I might be completely wrong about that, right? That was just my own theory because, I don't know, the best way to learn is to be wrong, and I'm not afraid to be wrong about that kind of thing. Um, it was an idea that I had, so... 
Flores might just disagree. He might just be like, no, 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 that's not the answer. The answer actually should have been this. And maybe if that conversation happens, I could learn something from it. But assuming that I'm right, that is also kind of a major game plan thing. You can't just like bring all your DBs and be like, okay, we're dropping to 14 now. He didn't really practice that. A lot of other coverage things kind of hinge on where the corners are, are dropping to and all of the coverage landmarks change. That it's just too uh, big and like interconnected of a system to change it on the fly like that. Once you've gone in with the game plan, you've gone in with, you kind of are stuck with it and you just have to hope your dude's ball. Feels like 2018 asks, while KOC seemed to use heavier personnel than usual in this game, he went away from the run in favor of screens and short passes. Can you elaborate on what the thought process is between passing out of traditional run-heavy formations versus three or more wide? Um... Okay, so there's a couple of things here. For one, the idea of using a screen is also kind of a blitz counter deal. If they're going to send all their guys straight up to the quarterback, a screen is sort of the exact thing that's supposed to counter that. Tampa was too well coached, uh, and Devin White and Levante David have been around the block too many times for them to get beat by that, which is kind of the first counter punch in the book. That's that's the first page of the book, you know? Um, so I think going to that on first down twice was an error. Um, in the in the the fourth quarter on the two possessions in the fourth quarter, going to that on first down both times. I don't think it's the craziest decision in the world, and I understand why they made it, but I think it's fair to call it that that was an error, and I think if Kevin O'Connell could have that one back, I don't think he would call it the same way. Um, but to more directly answer your question, what's the thought process between passing out of 13 personnel, right, with Johnny Munt on the field and Josh Oliver versus you know, with uh, three wide where you can have that be KJ Osborne and Jordan Addison instead. Um, the thought process is, for one, if you come out in 13, the defense is going to be a l anticipating run a lot more. So you might get more success with play action. For two, you can bring all those big guys out and then you can spread them out wide into an empty formation. That is something all offenses do from time to time. And uh, the, the dividend that it pays is that it gives you a man zone indicator for sure, right? Because if that, if let's say you take TJ Hawkinson and you split him out wide, if a linebacker goes with him, that is man coverage. Because now that linebacker is playing out where the cornerbacks play. And the only way that's going to be normal is if he's on his matchup, right? Um, and if he doesn't go and there's a corner out there on Hawkinson, well, that's not a matchup they would typically want. It's probably zone coverage. And so you get some pre-snap information. So a lot of times what they'll do is they'll split TJ Hawkinson out wide, then motion him back in and run a normal play. But we got our pre-snap information. Uh, but the other thing that it can do is let's say it is man coverage can force that linebacker to play like he's a cornerback and TJ Hawkinson can run a route like he's a wide receiver. I'm taking Hawk in that matchup every time, uh, out there on the fringes of the field where neither of those guys are used to playing, I think Hawkinson will be more comfortable than like whoever your Mike linebacker is. Um, so that's part of it. And here's the deal. I, I'm pretty sure that most of the time, if you look up like personnel usage and run pass rate, uh, that teams just will run more out of heavy pers personnel and pass more out of uh, lighter personnel, but it'll never be 100%. You gotta subvert it sometimes just to keep the defense honest. So that's part of it as well. And then if like something major happens on one of those plays, then we're gonna remember that and we're gonna be like, why were they passing out of 13? That was weird. When in reality, they probably do that once or twice every game, and we just don't notice unless something crazy happens and we have a reason to really log that that was a pass out of 13 personnel. Um, okay, got a whole bunch more questions here. 
and I want to make sure that I can get to them all and not leave anybody hanging. But before I do that, let's talk about Daily Fantasy. Daily Fantasy sucks. I don't like it. It's sort of this weirdly optimized game that's dominated by like sharps that put in, you know, a thousand entries that are all a bunch of weird outliers and they're the ones that actually win all the prize pools at, at DFS places. Um, but prize picks is trying to change that. They just want you to play versus them. They are going to set an amount of like fantasy points that this player, or that player is going to get. And all you got to do is more than or less than. And if you can beat the house, then you can win. Plus, you don't have to put together an entire fantasy team. If all I really want to do is have takes on quarterbacks, I can just have takes on quarterbacks. I don't have to start thinking about tight ends and DST and all that stuff. That is what prize picks is there for you to do. So if you go to prizepicks.com slash locked on NFL, use promo code locked on NFL, all lowercase, you can get a first deposit match up to $100. Once again, that is prize picks. Moving right along with this. Twitter Tuesday episode of the Lockdown Vikings podcast. Next one comes from Good Thunder Guy, who asks, I'm confused about something. On Saturday, the Vikings cut Miles Gaskin from the active 53-man roster, only to sign him to the practice squad and elevate active status so he could play on Sunday. Why they do that? Um, so this is a salary cap thing. Miles Gaskin is what's called a vested veteran, which means he's played in the NFL for enough years to have the salary cap treat him differently than somebody who's, say, in the, only in their first or second year in the league. Um, as a vested veteran, there's certain things like when you get cut, you don't get exposed to waivers. You just become a free agent right away. Uh, because you've already completed your rookie contract, essentially, once you get drafted, you're guaranteed a certain amount of money via the rookie wage scale, right? Uh, and so if you get cut after being drafted, uh, all, all the other teams get a chance to pick up that contract where the other team left it off and essentially saying the only way you actually don't get this deal is if all 32 teams say no to you uh, at that price. And that's what the waiver process is. Vested veterans don't get anything like that. It's, hey, at this point, you're just a guy who plays football for a living and you're going to sign the contract that you're going to sign. The draft is kind of done helping you. Uh, that's why that particular rule exists. And there's this weird loophole exploit thing that teams will do with it uh, when you are a vested veteran, when you are on a, a roster at, uh, on for week one, your salary becomes fully guaranteed. If you don't want that player's salary to be fully guaranteed, you just don't have them on your roster week one. So you move them down to the practice squad where you can then still elevate them on game day and still use them in the game. But now they're not on the roster week one, so it doesn't become fully guaranteed. That's the loophole. So it's because he's a vested veteran. Uh, they... Could move him back up to the active roster now if they wanted to, uh, although they've re-signed him. They've, they've kept him on the practice squad, it sounds like, so maybe they'll use that roster spot on somebody else. Landon Renley asks, does the NFL salary cap increase beat inflation on average? Essentially, are players making way more money now compared to previous decades? Oh, yeah. Like, global inflation? Like, e economic inflation in the U.S. dollar? Yes. Oh, my God, does it beat it. Uh, the NFL is just a very rapidly growing company, and it's why all the shareholders are really, really happy and why all the owners are really reluctant to sell their teams. It's good at making money, and it's good at making more money than they made last year. Uh, in particular, in particular, the TV deal that they signed kind of around the time of COVID uh, is part of it that is just this new influx of revenue and the salary cap is determined by a percentage of revenue, which has also steadily gone up during like CBA negotiations, if I recall. Um, 
but there's also going to be a grambling deal that probably puts a whole new infusion of cash and the salary cap's going to go up way more. And so there's going to co- uh, come a point where $40 million of dead cap, like what the Packers dealt with to deal Aaron Rodgers away, uh, is just a normal amount of dead cap. Like that's just going to become a point where it's, ah, that's like tight end money, $40 million. Like that's, we're going to get there someday and it's going to feel weird. So I don't know. Get ready. Grill asks, who is at fault for the lack of run game effectiveness? KOC, running backs, O-line, all of the above. Very much a play-to-play question. Sometimes it's just the O-line. There definitely were plays where the running backs misread it. Uh, There were times when you just kind of wish they could go to a different uh, to a different punch there. Sometimes the bucks just had the perfect thing dialed up and it's just like, ah, well you got us. Um, you, you'd have to be specific about which play. Cause the answer will be different play to play. But at, at some point the answer was, was any of them. Uh, Justin Leclerc asks, do you think no preseason snaps for most of our starters played a significant part in the sloppy offensive play? Uh, a lot of people ask me this to me, that sounds like a very weak sauce excuse. And if you say, oh, we just didn't play in the preseason. That would have been like 30 reps, man. That wouldn't have done anything. Joint practices give you like 100 reps. That's the whole point is that there are more reps. So if you did play in the preseason and therefore didn't play in the joint practices, um, that would be worse, I think. I think that would just make it worse. That's I, I'm really sympathetic to the joint practice thing just because it is more reps. It's not in-game stuff, so maybe the in-game operations and all that aren't there, but the coaches were there in preseason, so they should be able to get their subs in and all that. Uh, I think the more of it is... Um, like, these guys played together all, all the all year last year, too, this this offensive line. Maybe it's backup center stuff, just not quite having the snap counts, snap counts down, so maybe Schlopman should have repped with the ones some. I don't know. It feels like that's pretty hindsighty, though. Michael Borbin asks, given the general randomness of two to three turnovers, why are people freaking out so much about how the game went? It's what people do, man. It's it's something went wrong. Time to panic and ruin everything, right? Oh, my God, I got a paint chip on the wall. Time to burn the house down, right? Get, go get a new one. Just get the insurance money. That's basically what people are, are suggesting. No, I to, to be more serious, I think that's just an, an emotional thing. There's a bargaining to it, right? Because there's a a thought process that's really hard not to spiral down into where my team lost and I'm mad about it. And since they lost, they're probably not that good. And since they're probably not that good, they're not going to win the Super Bowl. And if they're not going to win the Super Bowl, what's the point of any of this? So if they have to get better and if they're going to get better, maybe they have to go, uh, you know, sign a a guard and they also have to fire all their coaches and maybe they should just tank. And you, you can see it's just the wheels turn. Right. And really what you're looking for is something to feel good about. And guess what? You're not going to find something to feel good about in a game where you're not happy about the result of that game. It's just going to suck. And I think there's a good lesson in life that you can learn from sports. Sometimes it sucks. It, it just does. And it's about enduring that and finding a way to endure that without saying something completely insane, which I think most people are pretty good at, but not everyone. Skull <laughs> and a bunch of numbers says, Mac Jones threw for 316 and three TDs? Really? Okay. Uh, do the Vikings have any shot to beat the Eagles? So, okay, you might have made that stat line up. And if you did, kudos. I'm not going to check you on it. Um, but if that's true, that's pretty good. Good job, Patriots. Um, do the Vikings have a shot to beat the Eagles? Of course. They always do, right? I mean, how many times have the Vikings been favored by two scores and lost the game? I, b- I bet you can think of two right off the bat. I bet you can. Uh, how many times have they been huge underdogs and won the game? Like, Game zero zero, man. Of course they have a shot to beat the Eagles. 
Uh, how that'll happen, I don't know. I'll talk to Locked On Eagles, Eagles guy in the crossover, and we'll see if we can find a way. But they won't be favored. But if the favorite won every time, Vegas wouldn't make any money, right? So go play ball. We'll talk about the Eagles more later in the week. I will see you guys all tomorrow. And as always, Skull.